You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. What is the difference between the Bible and To Kill a Mockingbird? Or the Bible and Harry Potter? Which I know so many of you worship like the Bible. What's the big difference? Is there a difference? And if there is a difference, why is that difference so important? Today we talk about one of the most fundamental aspects that is probably most in question by the majority of people in our social circles. What might it mean that the scriptures are inspired by God? Because for some, inspiration means that the Bible gives every answer to every question about every issue in the world. So you have a question about paleontology? The Bible has answers. You have a question about your 401k? The Bible can help you out. You have a question about the intricacies of dating in the 21st century? Let the Bible be your guide. You have a question about politics? The Bible has you. Or does it? I mean, does the scripture give a scientific background of exactly how the world was made, how old it actually is, and what we are to do with fossils? Does it prescribe to you what a healthy, flourishing, dating relationship is like in the modern West, specifically when these pages were written with arranged marriages in mind and the idea of dating wasn't even conceptualized? And given the fact that the stock market wasn't even in the landscape of the Bible's authorship, and they lived in mostly agrarian societies where to own a large animal signified wealth, can we rely on how best to invest our money by reading a scripture and building a whole theology of wealth on a proverb about investment? And to go ahead and just stir the pot all the way up, does the Bible prescribe how to vote? Given that the early church lived in a dictatorship society in which democracy was laughable and survival of the fittest found its climax in the fact that Romans would put people in arenas and watch them fight like caged animals until someone died, can we rely on that culture to dictate our republic's voting ethic as it relates to two fallen individuals in office and subsequently many people in local, state, and national levels? See, for some, inspiration means that the Bible is clear-cut on every one of those answers. And for others, inspiration means what we think of in English. Inspiring, like as to motivate or encourage someone to do something. So just one small positive thought in the morning can change your whole day. That's kind of the mantra. Or what if we just took one Bible verse stripped it of its context, and made it our own little quote, and let that inspire us. For instance, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Rich. This is a rich verse. Except for the fact that it was written to a people group that was taken hostage by an empire, enslaved and brutalized, and it was not written to you, envisioning one day in the 21st century American church, individuals would hold on to that single phrase and think that our life is somehow going to miraculously turn out financially prosperous, emotionally stable, and exactly how we envisioned it. It was written by a prophet of God to the people of God in its absolute darkest hour. 
And the nickname of that prophet was the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, because so much of his letter is a giant lament that Israel won't listen. Or, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse is written in the context of a letter where Paul is chained to a wall, and we typically miss the verse right before it that says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, newsflash, it is not just a phrase to help you in a football game or give you an A on the test or do whatever you were already going to do without God. It's actually in the context of what it means to cultivate serious contentment against the backdrop of evil. And while we can take solace in the fact that millions of people Googled Philippians 4.13 when they saw it on Tim Tebow's eye black, We can also take a reality check that someone on the other team probably had that same scripture on their eye black. So now, who is God going to listen to? One more, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This has been a bit of a popularized scripture in the American experiment over the last 50 years, used by pastors and pulpits, world leaders, and motivational speakers. The problem is that this scripture was not spoken to America. This is actually the context of Solomon praying to God about Israel, and God appears to Solomon saying, I have heard your prayer and have chosen the temple to be the place for sacrifice. Turn back. To me, and I will withhold judgment on the land. This is not to say that we shouldn't pray, obviously. It's not to say we shouldn't pray for our nation and for the many gross ills that continue to plague us. But America is not Israel. We are not a holy nation distinctly set apart in history for God's unique redemptive purposes. And so when we use Scripture to our advantage like that, we are actually robbing it of the beauty of its inspiration. So I want to try and bring some clarity to the conversation around inspiration. And then I want to talk about the goal of inspiration. What is the end game here? Remember, our entire premise is that we believe the scriptures because we follow Jesus. We do not follow Jesus because precise, because we believe in a book. It's because we have encountered the one to whom our lives are all about, and therefore, if the scriptures are paramount to him, they must be paramount to us. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what Jesus says about the scriptures. In Jesus' first encounter with Satan, he is in the wilderness. He's fasted for a significant time. Here is where we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Satan tempts Jesus with hunger. Command these stones to become bread. And Jesus responds, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Then Satan tempts him with twisting the very words that he just quoted and quotes scripture back to him. And Jesus responds again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Satan tempts him a third time. You can have the world just bow the knee. 
And Jesus resolute in his response, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. The moment right before Jesus steps on the public scene, we read about Jesus quoting the scriptures hidden deep within his soul. In a moment of weakness, what he goes back to is the Hebrew Bible. And in moments of temptation, what he goes back to is the Hebrew Bible. It cannot be understated. Jesus pretty much had the entire law memorized. So much so that he knew he was the fulfillment. This was not just an old document that carried historical records. This was the stuff of life, the stuff that Jesus held close and near to his own heart. And we know that Jesus knew the scriptures from a historical perspective. He references events recorded in the Old Testament, like the flood, the destruction of Sodom, the burning bush. He refers to individuals like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Solomon, Elijah, and Jonah. But he also knew there was a person and a personality behind the writers of the Scripture. So as his ministry continues, we hear him quote in Matthew 19, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, not host fast, like is what it says, and the two shall become one flesh. So according to Jesus, it was Yahweh that said, Man shall leave his father and mother. And yet, it was Moses who jotted it down. This is what Paul means when he writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. The word in Greek is theonoustos, where it appears that Paul has literally combined two words, God and breath. Moses is the writer. God is the author. Moses is communicating what God is intending. In Mark 12, it goes like this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Notice the wording. David, writing in the Psalms, spoke in the Holy Spirit. David, 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, wrote words that Jesus, the king of the cosmos, affirms as spoken by the Holy Spirit. Not David who got up one morning, had an interesting thought, and so jotted it down. Not David, who was feeling somewhat emotional and journaled on a piece of paper. Not David, who was smart and wise and an artistic poet. David, speaking by the Holy Spirit. And then as Jesus ascends into the sky, Peter rises up as a decision must be made regarding who will replace Judas as one of the twelve. And Peter pulls out, Peter stands up and says, Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Again, the Holy Spirit speaking through the pen and paper and mind and heart of David. And as we move further into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit continues to show up. The reason we even have anything other then the biographies of Jesus is because Jesus knew that we were going to need record of how to live in light of the resurrection and the ascension. He knows the story does not end with him because he literally says, you will be better off when I am not here because the helper will come to you. 
Without the New Testament, we are unsure how to live. Without the New Testament, we don't know how to embody the family values. Without the New Testament, we have little idea of what it means to be the church, care for doctrine, live as exiles in a city, and wait for the return of the king. And Jesus knew that, and so he graciously gives us the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as we continue to read on in Acts and further, we get introduced to the Christian hater Paul, who Jesus visits, completely upends his life. And in his first letter to the church at Corinth, he says something interesting twice. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of the Lord. And then he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. Paul is the scribe to the churches, and it is the breath of God behind Paul that is animating what he is writing. Paul does not lose his, his ethnicity, his cultural background, or his gender. He doesn't lose any of that. In fact, this is what makes the Bible so believable. That God would not parachute some things down and then parachute out, but that he would use the muck and mire of human existence and somehow transfer it into words so that we might know him. And we see this in Peter's reference to Paul's writing when Peter wrote to the churches. This is what Peter says. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, are, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So he's admitting something here. There are some difficult things in some of Paul's letters to parse out. And yet some folks are wanting to twist them as they twist other scriptures. The, the Greek word for scripture here is the Greek word gaphe. It occurs 51 times in the New Testament. And every time it refers to the canonical Old Testament scripture, except for twice. Here in 1 Timothy 5.18, which indicates that the writings of the, of the New Testament, as authorized by the apostles, are recognized as on par with the Old Testament writings. It is likely that some of the Gospels and epistles had been circulating throughout the early church and thus were held in high regard and, like the Old Testament, divinely inspired. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, about the formation of the Old Testament and New Testament and how those books got compiled and how and why they are trustworthy as opposed to other books that might also claim to be inspired by God. But in this moment, I just want you to see that there is a theme and thread that runs throughout the scriptures. And that is that there are writers of the scripture and there is an author of the scripture. Now, the question still remains, how did the mind of God interact with the mind of humans? How did what God wanted to communicate get onto the real pages of parchment that were written down on by hands like ours? How is it that each and every word that made it onto the page were exactly what God desired? I mean, after all, we are fallen human beings. And this is what people have been challenged by since the inception of these writings. I think here's the irony. We are so enamored with the how 
as if that will convince us to live out the why. There are way smarter people who have articulated all of the historical and theological reasons of how Scripture is inspired, and I have loads of references if you would like a list. But here is what I want to provide, a simple working definition of inspiration. This is by Michael Byrd. He says this, Inspiration directs thoughts, not the syllables of individual words. Inspiration involves a kind of supernatural connection between God's ideas and their verbal expression in the minds of individual authors. So here's what that, here's what that means. God's word is translatable, meaning if inspiration only applied to the original Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic words then it would mean that those words alone are divine revelation and our English Bibles are obsolete. But thankfully, we do not believe that is the case. Translation is very important, but our concern is mostly with the concepts because it is the concepts that are divine and inspired and it is the words written down by the individual authors that are human and unique. So when we say the Bible is inspired, we are saying that there are many voices and one personality. And we are saying that there is a colorful tapestry, but there is only one quilter. And the story of Jude is telling the same story as the story of Jonah. And the exodus of Israel holds the same thread as the exodus from the false self to the child of God. Which means books like Exodus reveal the same person as the book of Romans. Now, that's a lot of theory. Okay, it's a lot of abstractness. So let me give you some live examples to hopefully punctuate the point. We are probably two and a half months out from me turning on Kenny G in our house. It's going to happen. It's going to happen right around the beginning of Thanksgiving. Now, I'm a sucker for Kenny G. But what that really means is I'm a sucker for Kenny G's Christmas album specifically. The last three years, I just smashed the refresh button because that stuff hits. Like, it really hits. So good. Here's the question. What is the source of Kenny G's music? Is it Kenny G himself, or is it his million-dollar Selmer Mark VI saxophone? We all know that if any of us tried to put our lips on that instrument, no one would mistake us for Kenny G. And we also know that Kenny G's music is iconic because he has learned the art of playing the sax. So the answer is in the question, which is it? Yes, it's both. It's the personality of Kenny G through the saxophone. It is the skill and the artistry and the breath of the talented musician coming through the uniquely and exquisitely designed instruments. This is how to conceptualize scripture, except you can blow it up to a massive scale. Listen to this. Does that not just take you to a place? I mean, listen to that. You have, you have the violin, you have the flute, the viola, the trumpet. You have all the intricacies of all these marvelous instruments, and you have all the beauty of these players' talents. 
And then you have one composer, John Williams. And then you have one story. Dinosaurs. Literally, you just have one story. It probably took most of you all, except Zeru, who's never seen Jurassic Park, uh, all of five seconds to realize what was being played. And it probably took you all of six seconds for that iconic scene to pop into your head when the team arrives in their Jeep and they get out in astonishment and the scientist says, Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Satlow, welcome to Jurassic Park. It's wonderful. I mean, that was pretty good. I was like on the spot, actually. But like the instruments play the music. But as you hear the music, you get caught up in the plot. Like tubas and flutes do not sound the same. And together they find this like harmonic tone. And violins and clarinets have very different purposes, but yet strike the right chord and there's this making of a symphony. And you put them all together and they still sound different, but they compose a masterpiece. This is the scriptures. It's not an instrument. It's an orchestra composed for a symphony. Or to take it a step further, when I walk into a library, I don't grab a pamphlet of Maya Angelou's poems and read them the same way as I read Frederick Douglass's biography. Just like I don't read Sam's textbook about amphibian the same way I read an anniversary note written to me by Sarah. They're different writings for different purposes written to different people. So I should read them with that in mind. I mean, even this week I was reading an update about uh, Ukraine. I read three distinct pieces of writing. I read a New York Times article that gave factual updates about what was happening on the ground, about the retreat of Russia, about the beginning of the war, and where it stands today. I read a narrative about an event. But then I read a poem written by a Ukrainian poet that goes a step further from the facts and takes me into an emotional space where my imagination is provoked by the feelings of someone on the ground who's experiencing some of the horror in real time using rhyme and meter to creatively paint a picture. And then... I read a missionary newsletter from people who I know who have been ministering in the city of Odessa for over a decade. And their words are personal and filled with hope, but also sprinkled with fear. I know the face of Kurt and Rochelle and have sat down with them to eat dinner, to hear their story and know their heart. And so when I read a personal update asking for personal prayer, it's more than facts and it's more than sheer emotion. It moves me to thank God for their witness and ask God for his justice. Three different types of writing and three different experiences in reading them. Do not look at the single bound piece of leather that is a Bible as one distinct voice. It's many voices. It's the voices of a lay fisherman like Peter and a government worker like Matthew. It's the writing style of Luke. It's a bit more storyteller. And it's the writing style of John, whose biography of Jesus is very concerned about showing us Jesus through signs and miracles and most other ones, culminating in the last 11 chapters being about the final miracle, death and resurrection. The library contains poems and proverbs by Solomon. And it's got the songbook of the Israelites where Hebrew stands as matter like they do in our modern anthems. It contains the legal code, a binding covenantal document, almost a, like a constitution of sorts for the Israelites that outline the distinctives of their life as a people. It's got handwritten letters from Paul written from jail with little more than a scribe to help him jot down his thoughts. It's got so much of our history, and it's got the brutal story of reality. 
You read the Bible actually for all it's worth, and it does not strike you as a fairy tale. It strikes you as blood and tears and difficult things to stomach. That, to me, makes the Bible more believable, not less believable. It's a story breathed into by God, inspiration. And yet, this library is not so much about inspiration, it's about revelation. This is a book about God, about the people of God interacting with him. It's a book that highlights the triune love of God from cover to cover, culminating in the Father's welcome of his children. And it's a book that highlights the Son's silent explosion into the world, fulfilling the very first prophecy on the pages of Scripture. The serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. You will defeat him and death by the coming death for your siblings. And it's a book about the Spirit permeating through the early church, expanding the outpost of the kingdom. So now the fun is not all happening in Jerusalem, but it's happening in house churches and other places built like this one. The Spirit catches people by surprise, making fools out of the world's wisest and giving dignity to the world's lowest. It is the story of a people who are on a very, very, very long search for God. And... It's a story of God trying over and over again to communicate to his people, I love you because I love you. This is a book about Revelation. Who is God and who are we in light of that? And if you consider for a moment how these writings have mostly been received since their inception, they've mostly been heard. Think about the Passover meal. What is happening but a giant celebratory rehearsal of God freeing his people from slavery? They retell a story of the faithfulness of God and everyone hears it. Think about the prophets. What is happening but God speaking through his chosen servant and the people listening and sometimes not listening and responding? Think about Jesus. When he opens up the scrolls in the temple, it was the people hearing the fulfillment and then seeing it happen in front of their lives. I have come to bring good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free. Think about the early church. Just picture this. It's a Sunday evening. Everyone is huddled up in a small little house with nothing but standing room. And Phoebe has come from the port city of Corinth with a letter. Most of the people in the room can't read. Most of the people in the room can't write. But for some strange reason, this small, unimportant, radical community in the megacity of Rome has taken them in. They're known by the way. And they welcome Phoebe in, and she reads this to them. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before him, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience Obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the next couple hours, they would hear the letter. They would hear the stories, the instruction, the grace, the good news, the loving exhortation, and the kindness of a generous God speaking through the Holy Spirit, through a man, Paul, and then through a woman, Phoebe. And the letter would end like this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is not a slight at us, nor is it a glorification of them. This is just me using my guttural instinct and contextual observation to say something obvious. I don't think we hear the words of Paul's letter to the Romans the same way they did. This is not a new philosophy, nor is it a more constructed worldview. This is an entirely new reality to live in. And our temptation is to think that this is another way of thinking. It's not. It's an entirely different atmosphere. And the most obvious difference is that this atmosphere is full of the oxygen of grace. And maybe, maybe it's our familiarity with the Bible, though I think that is way overblown. Or perhaps it's that we're not convinced it's entirely true, which I think is more believable. Or what I think is most plausible is that if we know the story, we're not convinced it's actually true for us. That the God of the universe would reveal himself to us and desire intimate relationship with us where vulnerability and openness become the narratives and grace becomes the ethic and holy intention becomes the desire. This is the wardrobe into Narnia. It is not another closet. It is another land. The Bible is the revelation of God himself. The story that is too good to be true, breathed out by God for us. And at the risk of saying something a bit provocative, I think a lot of us can sum up our Christianity in this one sentence. God is meant to be read. God is meant to be read. I don't believe that's true. Because if that were the case, God would not have put on skin like ours. But he is a relational God, a God who hears and a God who speaks and a God who weeps and saves and who has come in the flesh, the yucky flesh of the human experience. And then he has done something, one, a one-upper, if you will, where he has sent his spirit to live among us and in us. So Yahweh is a personal God, but not private. He is a communal God. And so we read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what Kyle read. We see that these writings are profitable for teaching. What are the core tenets of our faith? What must be central and held tightly? These writings are critical for us. We get very concerned about what is on the periphery. 
very preoccupied about the, the gray areas of faith. And we typically are very unamused by what is central to following Jesus. This book is the downward journey of humility and humiliation and surrender to life in God. Reproof. This is the idea that God will use his word to break down the projected notions and false ideas we have of ourselves. What is your identity? The only way to find your identity is to open yourself up to the living God and prepare the outer man to die. To become a community where we actually embrace the scripture that is sharper than a two-edged sword cutting between joint and marrow, piercing the thoughts of the heart. Correction. We hate this word. We do not want to be corrected. We do not want to be cut open. But as much as we think this idea is about moral constraints, it's much more about freedom. We get free when we take ownership of all our failures and all our faults. We stay enslaved when we refuse to come to grips with the fallen reality of our flesh. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. We have actually got the thing inverted. The fall has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. But correction is not only good. It's actually the way to health and wholeness in the Lord. Do not spurn the invitation to correction. God gets us there via the scriptures. And lastly, training in righteousness. So when it came to walking with and under a rabbi, there was a real concept of training, not consuming righteousness or in taking righteousness, but training in righteousness. You study, you learn, you practice, you failed, you repeated. Jesus sends out his disciples and then he receives them back. And then he sends them out and he receives them back. We train for marathons, for sports, for instrumental skills, for writing. We train in our work. We train in everything. Intentional practice for significant periods of time for deep impact. And yet... When it comes to our discipleship, we would much rather consume information than practice what we know. And these writings were not meant to be read. These writings were meant to be lived. We are the messengers of God. It almost sounds heretical to say that out loud. But it is actually the Spirit in us who opens our eyes as we open the Scriptures so that we might walk out in the world as Spirit-empowered people. Honestly, it's as if we are coming from the future. And we are saying there is another kingdom that we are attempting, fallen as we may be, to embody. Come and see. Come and see what God is doing. We are meant to be awestruck by the God who breathed out the words of the book and by the same Spirit that is breathing life into us. It is revelation. Can you see it? Let's pray. Lord, so many of us have a complicated relationship with the Bible. 
And potentially, perhaps, that just means that we have a complicated relationship with you. And that is okay. And we just humbly admit that. And yet we ask for grace and mercy. We need you. Increase our desire for you. Lord, take down the, the, the ideas and the, the, the preconceived notions that we have about ourselves and remind us who we are, children of the living God, brother and sister to Jesus. May that be a reality in our lives as we interact with one another. Thank you for how you continue to move in this church. We are continually expectant to see your hand at work in our lives and through our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.